Good worship. Man. Yeah. I love coming to church here. I love Billy. In spite of the fact that he calls me reverend, I love Billy. Hey, have you ever made plans and changed them? Anybody? Have you ever changed them a couple times? Uh, More than three. Have you ever disappointed anyone by your change of plans? Have you ever been disappointed by someone else's change of plans? All right, we're connecting here. Well, that's what we see in our text today. Um, But it isn't really even a major issue. But the Corinthians made it a a major issue. There was a faction of believers within the church at Corinth that were looking for anything they could find to discredit Paul. So they pounced on his change of travel plans to accuse him of being fickle. That's a biblical word. So today we're continuing in our study of 2 Corinthians. Turn to chapter 1. Uh, Ushers have Bibles. If you uh, need one, raise your hand. They'll bring you one. Uh, you can use it. Uh, do I need to do something here? Look at that, I do. Um, we're in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 22 this morning. And just to review where we are, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth to defend himself against those in the church that aren't so sure about his leadership. They aren't sure about his apostleship. Uh, given that he has suffered so much, um, so many different things that they questioned his apostleship. Because remember, if you've been here, they, they were uh, influenced by this Epicurean philosophy of life, this Epicurean worldview that says life should be happy and pain-free and anxiety-free and pleasant. So if it isn't all those things, Paul must be sinning somehow. But last week we saw that suffering... And that word suffering, we defined it last week, is including all kinds of hardships. It's a big, broad term that Paul uses in chapter 1. Every kind of pain and grief and struggle and difficulty, that that suffering is part of our calling in following Jesus. When we signed up to follow Jesus, we signed up for a path of suffering. It's what Todd called the cruciform way of life a couple weeks ago when he introduced the book. Uh, from the Bible Project video. Now this truth that suffering is part of the path of following Christ totally upended the Corinthians. I mean, it just, it just threw them off completely. And it probably rocks our world too. Um, we, maybe some of us didn't realize we were signing up for a path of suffering when we chose to follow Jesus. But we did, and we do. Um, That's why we have the book of 2 Corinthians, because it's teaching us that we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ as we see in verse chapter 1 and verse 5, or as we share abundantly. Isn't that a great word, abundantly? Unless it applies to sufferings. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so we saw last week that even as we share in the sufferings of Jesus, we share in all the comfort that comes from the God of all comfort. And we suffer what we do so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Have you been practicing that tongue twister this week? 
So as we continue in chapter one today, we see Paul defending himself against this faction of rebellious Corinthian believers. He's accused of being fickle, having self-serving motives because he changed his travel plans so often. But he's going to make it abundantly clear that he is not fickle, and he uses his, his defense to affirm that neither is God fickle. In fact, God is absolutely unchangeable. Even though Paul is defending himself as not being fickle, maybe he is, because none of us are perfect in that area, but God isn't. God never is. And this truth is comforting because as we go through this crazy, twisted journey of life with all the stuff that it throws at us, we can depend on a God who does not change. And that's what he's going to do. So to set up Paul's teaching on God's unchangeable changeableness, which is where we want to go today, we need to look at how this faction of rebellious Corinthians attacked him and how they tried to poison the rest of the Corinthian church against Paul. And so they accuse Paul of being fickle. Look at, look at uh, verses 15 through 18 of chapter 1. Well, let me read it. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. The, t- Paul's telling, talking to the Corinthian church. So that you might have a second experience of grace. We'll see what that means in a minute. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. And, and we'll see it a little bit here. He was collecting money to take to the church in Jerusalem, part of his purpose in this, these travels. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? In other words, he's saying, I changed my plans. Was I doing that on my own worldly wisdom? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes this way and no, no this way? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now the ESV uses the word vacillating, but I looked up the Greek word and it actually could be, it could be uh, translated as fickle. And so I'm going to use that word because I just think it, it's just a fun word to say. Um, and it describes what, what the Corinthians thought of Paul. The definition of this word means lightheaded. You know anybody lightheaded? I don't mean blondes. Um, <clears throat> oh, oh, no, no, no. Ooh. That's not how I meant it. Oh, man. Can we cut that out of the tape? Um, light-colored heads. Okay, forget it. I'm just going to dig myself deeper here. Um, all right, let's get serious again. Um, so anyway, it means, it means lightheaded or unfaithful or inconsistent or unreliable. That's what the word fickle means. And that's what they accused Paul of doing. And he says, I am not doing that. I am not vacillating. I'm not fickle in this. Now, to try to understand this, um, piecing together all of Paul's plans and all of the changes he made, it's difficult. And not everybody agrees on the exact sequence, but I want you to try to get a little feel for what was going on in all this. Uh, a lot of this is a setup for next week when we continue on into chapter 2, and, and some more of this comes to bear there. But uh, first of all, look, just follow this map as I, as I talk through this. Look at the places on the map and, and try to follow Paul's journeys. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, we learned that Paul would leave from Ephesus. So he starts in Ephesus, 
And he was going to visit Corinth after passing through Macedonia and maybe stay there for the winter. So he would go up north of Ephesus and come around and down into Corinth. But in our text today, verses 15 and 16, he changed his plans and decided to visit Corinth first before going to Macedonia. So he'd go across the ocean to Corinth and then up into Macedonia and then visit them again when he comes back from Macedonia. This was the double, the second experience of grace. I'd get to visit you twice is what he's saying. Then Corinth could send him on his way down to Jerusalem to take the financial gift to the church there. But this first visit to Corinth directly from Ephesus across the water proved to be really painful. Again, we'll see that next week. So he changed his plans again and decided not to visit Corinth the second time because it would be painful for them and for him. So he went directly back to Ephesus from Macedonia. He was up there and he just came back to Ephesus. Sometime later, not sure how long, he apparently traveled to Troas, just north of Ephesus, to preach the gospel. And then he went back into Macedonia. And while he was there, he was distressed because he was waiting to hear from Titus how things were going in Corinth. Corinth was, or Titus was there and was going to bring Paul a report. Finally, he brings a report to Paul that he, Paul, is being attacked as fickle because he changed these plans so often. And they accused him of saying yes out of one side of his mouth and no out of the other side of his mouth. So everybody understand the travel? Yeah, me neither. Uh, this, is, this is confusing, and it's like, oh, no wonder they accused him of being fickle. He was going to do this and go there, and he'd change it to do that and go there. But Paul explains to them that his change of plans had nothing to do with fickleness. But he, in fact, had a clear conscience about what he was doing, and what he was doing was in the name of following Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 14. For our boast is this. What we glory in, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity or single-mindedness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you, toward you, Corinthians, we were single-minded. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. He's defending himself by explaining that he had this singleness of heart, this simplicity, this, this uh, godly sincerity. There was no double standard, no ulterior motives. He was seeking the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church at Corinth. He wasn't seeking his own interests. He wasn't being double-minded or fickle. He wanted to do what was best for the, the, the movement of the gospel. Now, that's all intro. We're all set up now for where we're going this morning. So now what Paul does is he uses this accusation of fickleness to teach the Corinthians about how unfickle, and that's a, a Greek word, unfickle, how unfickle God is, how faithful he is. God has called us to share in the sufferings of Christ, but he's given us these guaranteed promises, this absolute rock-solid certainty that he is unchangeable. Because God, in his character and his purpose, is dependable. And we can count on him. 
As we walk through life and as we walk the path of sufferings and, and pain and hardship, God doesn't change. So he's going to give us three, I'm going to call them three rock-solid truths to convince us that we can completely and totally depend on God in the midst of suffering. The first one is this, God is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. Now, that doesn't mean he always answers our prayers with yes. Don't don't mistake that. It means God is unchanging. He doesn't say yes this day and no this day and get all fickle. He will never abandon us to to our situation that we find ourselves in. He doesn't... He he isn't undependable. He is absolutely there. One one way of describing this unchangeableness of God is, is this definition at the top of these verses here, that God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Look at those verses. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? And Isaiah 46.10, this is just an absolutely powerful, uh, uh, comforting passage. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, says God. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Oh, isn't that comforting? God is rock solid. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not fickle. He doesn't waver or waffle. He cannot, does not, will not change his character or his purposes or his promises. He cannot become more or less loving. He cannot become more or less holy. He cannot become more or less wise. If God could be more loving, that means he's not fully loving right now. And and, and if he were to become less loving, that means he's no longer perfect in love. So he can't change in those character qualities of who he is. And there is no plan B. God's plan and purpose will stand. Got it? Got it? But God does change in how he interacts with people. Because you've all read those passages where it says God changed his mind, God relented. It's like, you know, wait a minute, God does change his mind. God does, well, he changes how he interacts with people and that he deals with people in their particular situation. And this is a beautiful truth. This isn't something to get all nervous about. This is a wonderful thing. Jonah went to Nineveh and said, you you will be destroyed. And they repented, and so God changed his mind, quote unquote. Isn't it great that he did? Isn't that a good thing? I really, come on, God, you said you were going to destroy us. You better do it because, you know, you need to be. No, that's a good thing. 
God does not change in his character or in his purpose, but he responds differently to different situations. When Nineveh repented, the circumstances changed, the situation changed, and so God responded differently to that situation. In the same way, Paul was unchanging in his purpose to help Corinth. He was unchanging in his desire to follow Jesus and share in the sufferings of Jesus. That didn't change. But in response to the changing circumstances in Corinth, he changed his plans to better serve and serve them and accomplish the kingdom purpose that Jesus had laid out. God called me to be a pastor some 31 years ago. First week in November. It'll be 31 years. And that's what I did for 18 years. And then I burned out and just was exhausted and hit the wall. And I resigned from our church and I began to work in construction. And I got a lot of flack for it. God called you to be a pastor. How can you do this? God's call doesn't change. If he called you to be a pastor, you need to be a pastor. The error in that thinking is that God's call to a ministry or a life setting, it can change. His promises don't change. He didn't leave me or forsake me because of that situation. But the way he responded to me was different because my circumstances changed. I was exhausted because of some bad choices, because of some bad life rhythms, I was no longer any good. And so God met me where I was and changed my life calling, if I could say it that way. I didn't know at the time if I'd ever pastor again. I didn't know if I'd be in construction the rest of my life. I started taking classes and getting certified. I thought, I might as well do this so that I could continue in, in this journey or in this new calling that God has me in. I did know that for this particular season, God called me to be a contractor. But then as time passed, he gradually restored us, and he did call us back into vocational pastoring. Now, was God fickle in all that? Was God fickle? Was I fickle? Thank you. <laughs> you have no idea. I don't think I was, not in this way. My life situation changed, and so God's way of dealing with me changed. God didn't change. Come on, God, make up your mind. Which is it, contractor or pastor? Are you being fickle, God? No, he's not. The beautiful thing is that God is absolutely unchanging in his character and his purpose, but he graciously and lovingly and tenderly meets us where we are. With all of our frailties and our foibles, some of them our own mistakes, some of them are mistakes that were thrown on us, he meets us there, and it's as if he changes how he deals with us. Not his character, not his plan, not his purpose how he tenderly deals with us. I needed to learn some things about rest and about Sabbath and about saying no and about understanding my identity was in Christ 
And God responded to that situation in my life, and he led me accordingly. He, he interacted with me differently than he had in the previous 18 years, if you will. This is beautiful. He deals with us where we are as we change. Just as Paul did with the Corinthian church. What Paul was doing was not being fickle. He was responding to changing circumstances in the church. And so he changed his plans accordingly. Always for the best of the church. So as we share in the sufferings of Christ in this cruciform path that we're on, he tenderly leads us through the dark valleys that we sometimes go through with exactly what we need. So Paul continues to explain this unchangeableness of God with the second rock-solid truth this morning, and that is his promises are yes and amen. His promises are yes and amen. Oh, man, this is so good. I'm excited about this part. God's promises do not change. They are dependable. They're never wavering. And in the midst of the tides and currents and storms of life, his promises are like these unmovable rocks that cannot be shaken by the worst storm. And we can count on those promises. Look at verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always Yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means to confirm or it means truth or it means so be it. Often in the gospels Jesus would say in the old King James, it was verily, verily, I say unto you. Uh, most of our translations say truly, truly, I say unto you. That's the word amen. Jesus is saying, amen, amen, I say unto you. Jews would regularly respond, amen, in response to prayers or statements with which they agreed. So when we say that God's promises are yes and amen, we're saying, so be it. It is true. It is established. It is confirmed. It's not changing. There's no fickleness. There's no, there's no wavering. Now, you've probably heard people in church say amen. Not cornerstone. We don't do it here. But other churches that are more spirit-filled, I mean, that are... Um... So this is going to be a little soapbox just for a few minutes, okay? You bear with me? People say amen in church because they hear something they agree... Maybe that's it. You never hear anything you agree with. Thank you. <laughs> I knew this would be fun. So they hear something they agree with, and they say, yes, it is so. I, it's true. Yes, amen. My dad was a Baptist pastor, and he would get so irritated at the congregation because he'd be preaching along something powerful, and nobody said anything. And, and I, can, I can hear him as clear as yesterday. Come on, say amen. Somebody say amen. Oh, he would yell at us. Because saying amen to a preacher is like saying, sick him to a dog. Yeah. Because it means somebody's actually listening. When I'm preaching along, or any of us are preaching along, and it's just this, and we say these profound truths, and it's just silence. 
It's like, are you guys all sleeping? Did you hear what I just said? So, since I am my father's son, and the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, and you certainly don't want to irritate me this morning, it's the wrong place. Hang on. I want, I want you to listen to some of my favorite promises, some of, some of my favorite, unchangeable, rock-solid promises that God's given us in his word, and, and respond as you see fit. He has promised to forgive all our sin, remove it as far as the east is from the west, and remember it no more. Amen. Yes and amen. He has promised that we who believe are his children, sons and daughters of God, heirs of the riches of heaven, that no matter what happens in our life, success or failure, good health or bad health, riches or poverty, depression or whatever it is, we will always and forever be a child of God. Yes and amen. He has promised that we will suffer hardship. Ooh, that was a little... Let's try it again. He has promised that we hey, wait. He has promised that we will suffer hardship, and that our suffering is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But He's also promised that He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never forget us. He will never be too busy for us. He is always there. Amen. Yes, and amen. And one of my favorites, this is such a comfort to me because as, as, we, as, we, as I walk through life, it's like, well, God, you are faithful there, but will you be faithful this time? And I'm slowly learning, he is always faithful. Second Timothy 2.13 says that he has promised to be faithful to us even if we are faithless. Amen. I love that line from the song Oceans that we sing sometimes. He's never failed, and he won't start now. He's never failed, and he won't start now. Thank you. We'll see how this goes. So God is unchangeable. His promises are yes and amen. The third rock-solid truth that we want to see this morning is that the Holy Spirit seals us and is our guarantee. No, this isn't the right time. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. It, it, it takes some practice. Um, you'll get it. Just keep, keep, keep trying. You know, sometimes as we walk through this, this life of, of following Jesus, we begin to wonder if God's forgotten us. Am I really? Maybe... Maybe I'm not his child anymore. Maybe he let go of me sometime when I wasn't looking. I mean, what father would treat his children like this, like what I'm going through right now? Really, this can't be right. So Paul ends this section of chapter 1 with this absolutely amazing truth. Verses 21 and 22, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Seal refers to this instrument that was used to make a mark. It's like a signature, like a, think of a signet ring and you would, you would push it into wax. 
It served as a legal protection. It served to identify property as belonging to the owner. It's like, it's like branding cattle. If any of you are ranchers or if you were a rancher, you would, you would burn a brand into the, 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 the steer's hide that would identify it as yours. And, and that mark couldn't be removed. In fact, you can buy leather that has the brand in it still long after that steer is dead and gone. It's yours. The Holy Spirit seals us at salvation as his very own. Somewhere in you or on you, it says, property of Jesus Christ. So when you go home today, look for it. (laughs) Property of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer and a follower of him. If not, you haven't been sealed. You haven't been marked as his own. But you can be. By believing Jesus is the only way to salvation. We are his very own possessions. No matter what comes our way, and a lot does, we can absolutely bank in the fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's very own. It is yes and amen and unchangeable. That brand, if you will, cannot be removed. He's also a guarantee. This is a financial term referring to a down payment. It's paid out as a guarantee that the, the, the rest of the commitment will be honored. This, this word for down payment always implies a payment that is tied to something bigger. And it gives the person with the down payment legal claim to the rest of it. We are promised that we own the riches of heavens. That, that, that we are God's sons and daughters and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And I think part of that inheritance is a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 4.17, we keep coming back to this verse. But we don't have those riches yet. We have legal claim to them, but we don't actually possess them. It's as if, this is going to be a a bit of a feeble illustration, and I'm a little, please take it as an example and not literal. Anyway, it's as if God owes us a billion dollars in blessings. And it's really infinite, but I'm just trying to make it tangible here. That billion dollars of blessings is the weight of glory. So he gives us a first installment, and that's the Holy Spirit. And this is the part where I might get struck by lightning. Um, The Holy Spirit is only a million dollars in blessings. He's far greater than that. But just bear with me. So that means when God gives us the Holy Spirit as a, as a guarantee of what's coming, we have this million dollars of blessings, but there's 999 million to go. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is the deposit, what else is waiting for us? I, I, we, can only, we can't imagine. We can't imagine. It's this eternal weight of glory far Beyond all comparison. And by giving us the Holy Spirit, he seals us and identifies us as his own, and he is the deposit. He is the guarantee. He is the down payment of everything else that's coming someday. So there's these three rock-solid truths to convince us that we can completely and totally depend on God. Even as we go through the the journey of suffering and pain and struggle and all that comes with it. 
we can walk that path with the rock-solid assurance that he is unchangeably with us. But I want to I I close with a few thoughts about this path of suffering that we're on. We need to make sure that we're truly sharing in the sufferings of Christ and not just suffering. Because we all suffer. Everybody has struggles. Everybody has hardship. Everybody has difficulties. But are we really sharing in the sufferings of Christ? I mean, very few of us get persecuted for our faith. The sufferings are more like things that come along unexpectedly, like we lose our job for, for no apparent reason. We, we get cancer or, or we just keep fighting depression and can't get, can't get up out of it. So here's a couple of questions that, that we could ask ourselves to help us understand if our sufferings are truly sharing in Christ's sufferings. First of all, do I move toward Jesus in my suffering? Or do I move away from Jesus in my suffering? Moving toward Jesus in my sufferings means that those sufferings, those difficulties, those hardships bring a softening, a a grieving, a humility, a brokenness, a clinging to Jesus as the only hope that I have, a reliance on him instead of myself. That's moving towards Jesus in my sufferings. And and I move toward him when I go through these hard times because his promises are unchangeable. Absolutely rock solid guaranteed. But he, he responds to what we need. Moving away from Jesus in my sufferings means that those sufferings will bring bitterness and anger and vindictiveness and Broken relationships because our eyes are on ourselves. We're looking at me, me. And those sufferings don't don't take away our self-reliance and move us towards Jesus' reliance. And so those those aren't sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Let me challenge you and encourage you this morning that we have a God who is absolutely unchangeable. We have the Holy Spirit who has sealed us as his own children, and that can't be undone. He is the guarantee, he's the down payment, he's the deposit for so much more that is coming. And his promises are yes and amen. And he is faithful, and he will never let us go. And so share in the sufferings of Jesus. Oh, Lord. Today, as we sit here, as we worship, as we listen, as we interact, as we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, all of us, everybody here has stuff in their life, painful situations, difficult circumstances, unexpected crisis or tragedy. And Lord, so may we take the truth of your unchangeableness and move toward you in our sufferings, knowing that we can absolutely depend on you to take care of us in that cruciform way of life. May you be exalted. May you be honored. May you be glorified. 
and how we walk the path in Jesus' name. Amen.